kids, you're dismissed to Lift Kids Church. And while they're being dismissed, I did want to make, uh, bring attention to two things in your chair, just in light of that last song we sang. I believe um, a few weeks ago, we were in Acts 14, talking about councils and creeds. And I thought, man, we need someone to come up with a modern day creed. And just this week, uh, Tim Challies came across my desk in his little article called, I'm an old fashioned Christian. You can read that on your own, but it's basically what we just sang, that he believes in the Bible, the God of the Bible. He believes in sin and salvation in Jesus Christ alone. So that's for your edification. And if you are a woman and you're here and wanting to get more involved, uh, our women's ministry has put together a little survey for you to fill out. So if you'll fill that out and put it in the pretty pink box right there. See it? It's a pretty pink box. It is going to be on the somewhere in, we won't hide it. It'll be on the back table. Put it in the back table there. That is for you. And just along the lines of, of people living out what they believe, one of the things I wanted to point out, and I forgot to say it because I was getting all choked up, but the Lord reminded me of it during our song, is uh, James made a choice. He had, James and Angel were going back to the West Coast, and he had a choice between one job or another. And he chose to go uh, for a little lesser pay to live in an area where he knew there was a good church. That was, his, that was number one on his list. He, he, and so there you talk about what we sing. You talk about what Challies writes about, I believe. There it is lived out in real life. I can go here and make a little more money, but I don't know if there's a good church or I can go here where I know there's a good church. I know where I can get plugged in. So we're going to miss you guys. Let me pray. Father, as we look into your word today, might our hearts be encouraged, might our faith be strengthened. And might your name be lifted high. Might you get all the glory and we get all the joy. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, what do these people have in common? Walt Disney, Ross Perot, Bob Hope, John Wayne, Dwight D. Eisenhower, Herbert Hoover, Harry S. Truman, Tom Brokaw, Wayne Gretzky, Charles Stanley. What do those men have in common? is that one time in their life, they were paper boys. Do we have anybody in here who was a paper boy at one time? Are you kidding me? This is a congregation full of paper boys. Well, add to the names all those hands that just went up. Uh, in 1833, a 10-year-old named Barney uh, Flarty was the first recorded paper boy. And a paper boy has a special relationship with the world because they don't create the news. Uh, they just deliver the news. They somewhat stand in the middle between the, the press and the people. And in some sense, uh, we are all paper boys. Paper boys were the, were the kids that drove their bikes and they threw it to the house. But there were these other uh, young people that helped out. They were called newsboys, like the band. And it makes sense to me now why they're called the newsboys. It's because these guys would stand on the corner, especially in towns like New York, where at one time there were 50 different papers and there was a lot of different stories going on. And so these young men would stand on the corner, extra, extra, read all about it. And they would try to get the news out. In a world full of competing voices, they were the ones that stood in between the news and the people. And in a very real way, not to be fully taken and don't read into the illustration. We are all paper boys. 
We stand in between the good news that's been given to us and the world that needs to hear it. And today you're going to see just how to do that. Uh, often people say, hey, what's, the, what's your favorite chapter in the Bible? More often than not, it's the one I'm reading. But there are good chapters, favorite chapters. Um, Eagle Bible Church has a special likeness for John 3.15. You, if you've seen our logo, logo, Christ Church Culture, it comes from John 15. We are to abide in Christ. We are to love one another. And we are to reach the world. Christ Church Culture. Uh, John Piper's favorite chapter is Romans 8. He just loves that chapter. And today, I hope that this becomes one of your favorite chapters. We are in Acts chapter 17. We're going to cover the entire chapter. And I think just as John 15 gives you a philosophy of ministry, if you want to see an overview of this uh, chapter, you might see it up there. Uh, those, that's of the section we're in, but the next slide shows us an overview of the chapter. Um, next one. Our relationship to the world, There's gonna, you're going to see three things. You're going to see uh, when it comes to our relationship with the world, with the word, uh, that we are to proclaim it. Our relationship with the word, we're also to receive it. And then with the world, we are to go to the world. Well, let me read the first nine chapters, or nine chapters, nine verses, and then we will walk through verse by verse. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews, and Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead, saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some of the men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason received them. And they were all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. And so we'll begin in verse 1. This is about turning the world upside down. And so they had passed through and come to Thessalonica. It's about a hundred-mile journey uh, along the Via Ignatia. It's like going from here to Denver. It's going right down I-70, a heavily traveled road. Probably took about three or four days on horseback. And so they come to Thessalonica. It is the mother of Macedonia. It's a harbor town, and there was a Jewish presence. And so Paul, in verse 1, goes into the synagogue, as was his custom over three weeks This was his pattern like he wrote about in Romans 1, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And so he'd come into a town, he would go to the synagogue, and he would reason with them from the Scriptures. As it says there in verse 2, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving. That idea of proving is literally to set alongside. And so he would take an Old Testament text and he would set it alongside 
Jesus's life and he would show them and explain to them how Jesus was the Christ. It was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead. Thus, in verse 3, whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Cyrus. Not all, but some were persuaded by this explaining and this reasoning, by this proving of Paul who Jesus was. As did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. This is very similar last week to Lydia. She was a leading woman. And so as happened in Philippi, so happens in Thessalonica. But the Jews, verse 5, were jealous and taking some wicked men of the rabble. And so here, here's what often gets me in this verse here is, here are these Jews, these people who devote themselves to being clean and to being of God, go to the men of the rabble, the wicked men of the raffle, rabble, and they form this mob, this mafia of the day. It just boggles my mind. They didn't think it was unclean to go gather these men, yet in the big scheme of things, they wanted to do whatever it took to shut Paul up. And so they formed a mob, and the city was in an uproar, and they attacked the house of Jason. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the authorities. And I love what they said here. In the New American Standard, it says, this, these men have upset the world. But I like how the ESV says, these men have turned the world upside down. They've taken everything we've said and turned it on its head. They were, as we're going through in our community groups, living countercultural. And having come here also, they were causing social upheaval. And they were talking about this man named Jesus, a king other than Caesar. And so this disturbed the people in verse 8 when they heard these things. And so when they had taken money, verse 9, from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Basically, Jason and the rest had to post bail. They had to get out of prison. And so, like we discovered in Acts 14, the gospel will cause division. And so you and I, beloved, are called to turn the world upside down. And if there was an application for this first section of Scripture, it would be this that as we uh, relate to the word in proclaiming the word, turn the world upside down, we are to proclaim and to persuade. I just read this week about a guy who's never heard in a church, you are to go out and persuade. You are to use good reason, logic. You are to be winsome. And so we proclaim to persuade. We want per people to uh, reason with the scriptures. We want them to join us. And so we ourselves are going to have to be persuaders to use logic, to know the gospel so well that we can sit and listen and discern the conversation and then guide it towards Jesus. Verse 10, the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And so about 40 or 50 miles southwest. And when they arrived, he did the same thing. He went into the Jewish synagogue. Verse 11. Now the Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea. But Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul, or I 
better yet, those who escorted Paul brought him as far as Athens after receiving a command for, si- for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, and they departed. And so what you see here in this paragraph, you're going to see not only in 1 through 9 are we to proclaim, explain, reason, and persuade people so that they would believe and join us. Here, there's a way that we are to receive the word. There's a way that we are to receive the word. In 11, the Jews were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica. It means open-minded. It means willing to listen. I like what the New King James says. It's fair-minded. They, they heard the scriptures and they didn't immediately mock or get agitated or stirred up. They wanted to understand them. And here's how they received the word. With all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. They had an attitude. They were eager. I ask you, are you eager to go to the Word daily? They had an action that they would examine the Scriptures. It's the idea that they didn't just read it, but they they opened it up. They carefully saw how the arguments were laid together, and they were thinking, is what he said to me true? And they did this. I I love this. With all eagerness, examining the Scriptures every now and then. Every now and then. They would thumb through it like a magazine. No. Every day. Why? To see if these things were so. They had an aim. Is what Paul is saying, is that true? Is that true? Many of them therefore believe, verse 12, with not a few Greeks, Greek women in a high, of high standing as well as men. But, and here's the same pattern, You're seeing Paul reason in the synagogues and you'll see it in the marketplace and you see people respond. Some are persuaded, some join, some believe, and some are agitated. And it sounds like news travels fast here from uh, Berea to Thessalonica because when the Jews heard it, they went down and started agitating and stirring up the crowds. And so the brothers immediately send Paul off and they're escorted as far as Athens. And so very quickly in verses 1 through 15, you don't get a whole lot on Thessalonica and Berea, but you do get two things. You get our attitude towards the word of God, how we are to give it, we are to proclaim it. Over and over it says Paul proclaimed. Are we proclaimers? And here in receiving the word, we're to be Bereans, eagerly examining every day. We are all, Every single one of us called to be theologians. We all are supposed to form some concept of who God is, how he relates to us and to the world. Socrates said the unexamined life is not worth living. I would say the unexamined word is not worth preaching. It's not worth having sit on your desk by your bedside. I would encourage, if you have any unbelieving friends, I'd encourage you. Go try to disprove it because... It says there in verse 12, it says, many of them therefore believed. They believed because they eagerly examined every day. And I would just ask an unbelieving person, just read the Bible with, a, with the aim to truly see what it says. And I'm going to trust God enough and the Holy Spirit enough that they might believe. That is the attitude we should have towards Scripture. We are to proclaim it. We are to receive it. We are to eagerly examine it every single day. But then there's our attitude and our actions in culture. And we come to verse 16 through 34, which is quite possibly the most famous 
of all Paul's sermons or Paul's uh, reasoning with people in Athens. And so I want to begin where Paul says, now while he was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols. So he gets, these brothers quickly see that he's getting attacked in Berea. They get him to Athens. And so Paul's waiting in Athens. He's waiting for his friends to show up. He starts to walk around the city. This is like Spurgeon in London. It's like MacArthur in LA. It's like Keller in New York, these great cities of the world. And he he was provoked because he saw all these idols. I ask you a question. Do you get provoked at the idols in your city? Are you provoked? That word is, it means one, are you irritated to the core that you want to do, do something about it? And so he's looking around and he sees all these idols. And back then it was easy to see idols. They were like, if you were going to India and you see all the little Buddhas on the corner, you could see them out there. And we don't see them these days. They're a little more subtle, but can you discern and are you provoked at your culture's idols, the material, the financial, the sensual, the idols of your culture? Does it provoke you? What what are the God substitutes in our culture? What is it that takes the place of God and can, and even in our hearts, in our very culture? What are the idols in our hearts, Ezekiel 14, 4 says? John Calvin says we are idol factories. Our hearts just churn them out. We are continually trying to find God substitutes. In Sunday school today, a gentleman shared, stood up and shared his testimony. He said, I went from this place to this place to this place, trying to find where it was. And so he was just chasing, literally, we could have said he was chasing down idols. What provokes us? What gets us worked up? What gets us a divine irritation? Is it a fact that there are many out there in our own culture who are dying and who will spend eternity apart from God? Or is it the fact that your internet's down for 10 minutes? I mean, does that provoke you? And so Paul in verse 17 did what he always does. He reasons and notice the two places that he does it. He goes into the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and into the marketplace every day with those who happen to be there. He didn't pick and choose necessarily. He said, I'm going to go, as I always do, inside God's house, so to speak, and reason with them from the scriptures. And you'll see here in a minute, he will go into the marketplace and he will stand and he will lift up the name of God. And so when he's doing this, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say. What does this babbler wish to say? These are the philosophers. These are the intellects of the day. These are your college professors. They would, they, it would be similar to me being in Boulder talking about Jesus. And they would say, who is this fool? And what does he say? He's speaking blah, blah, blah about this Jesus guy. And so Paul is ready to give a defense for the hope that is within him. Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus in the resurrection. He's saying some things we kind of heard before, but they're mysterious to us. And so Paul in verse 19, and they took him and brought him to the Areopagus. And here you see Paul says, may we know what this teaching is that you're presenting 
For you bring some strange things to our ears. And we wish, therefore, that these things, what these things mean, your teaching is strange. It's like uh, Russell Moore was sitting down with a, a lady and he was talking about a marriage between a man and a woman as normal. And she said, that is just so strange to me. That's what's happening in today's world. It's strange to, for a man and a woman to be married and to have kids and to raise them in a local church that preaches Jesus. It's strange. But these curious intellects wanted to know. And I love what Paul does, or what Luke does here in verse 21. Uh, he has a little fun with the idea of these who call Paul a babbler. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling and hearing something new. Here you're calling Paul an idle babbler, and that's really all you do is sit out and talk. And so uh, if you go back just a few slides, Heath, there is a picture of the Areopagus um, where they would take someone if they wanted to learn. And so commentators differ on this, but that's probably right where they were. Were they on top? I don't know. Were they inside at a council meeting? I don't know. But that's where it was. If you've been to that part of the world, you've probably seen it and you're like, yeah, that's the picture. And so in verse 22, Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus said, some uh, have equated this. Uh, That was the Greek name. And then the Roman name was Mars Hill. And that's where you get some of the greatest apologetics ministries. Some good churches uh, called Mars Hill. Because they were talking about, here's Paul standing as a paper boy in the midst of who God is. And he's taking that message to a world that needs to know. And he stands up and he says in verse 23, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. Pause right there. <laughs> that is the, the, the um, nomenclature of today. I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. That's why I don't go to church, because I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. Paul says, you're very religious. And I would say to anybody today, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. I would say, you're absolutely religious. I would say, where's your religion? Well, what do you mean? I would say, well, show me your checkbook. Show me your calendar. And I'll show you what you worship. Well, I, I, I don't worship any. I, okay, show me your calendar. Well, <laughs> I got a tea time tomorrow. <laughs> and then I have one on Friday. And then actually I have another one I forgot in but. So you're spending your time and money at the golf course. You are very religious. You're devoted to your religion, i.e. idol, of golf. You give time to your golf. Now this, because I'm using golf illustration, don't not sign up for the golf tournament, okay? Just just get that. But I'm just using that as an illustration. You, You give time to your golf. You give money to your golf. You give effort to your golf. You want to get better at golf. You are very religious. Or I could talk to somebody else. Well, I don't have a calendar. Well, well, your last seven receipts are from this saloon. You're very religious. You probably have a place where you sit. You probably have a particular item that you order. You are absolutely very religious. Let's get out of this 
idea that you're spiritual, but you're very religious. And the fact that you're saying that just shows me you're trying to get around this notion of Christianity. And here's what Paul says, For I passed along and observed the objects of your worship. What what are the objects of our culture's worship? Can we observe them? And then can we do what Paul does right here? Make a connection to build a bridge. I found also an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. He is not necessarily saying that particular little idol to the unknown God was the statue of Yahweh. He's just using it as a bridge to connect to the gospel. And he says, you have this idol to an unknown God. You're even saying, you're reasonable enough to say you don't know about this God. Here I am going to proclaim him to you. Just a few weeks ago, I was sitting with a non-Christian. And I said, so do you believe the universe is eternal? He said, no. Well, where did it come from? If it's not eternal, it had to have a beginning. Where did it come from? He says, I don't know. I said, I felt like Paul. Well, let me proclaim to you what you do not know. And that's what Paul does here. And now he's going to walk through and he's going to give you a theology that is sound and in line with the scripture, but he's in the marketplace. Chances are he doesn't have his scroll. He's not reading. And so he's just, this is Paul who had spent years getting his theology correct. And now he's standing in the midst of these men of Athens, these intellects, and he's saying, I'm going to appeal to you with some, to someone. And he begins, as all good presentations should begin, he begins with God. The God who made the world and everything in it, being the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. There is a God and he created the world, which that necessarily means he's the eternal one. He created the world. God is the creator. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Jesus said it like this, I did not come to be served, but to serve and give my life as a ransom for many. It says like Hebrews in 1.3, Jesus is at the right hand of the God and he upholds the world by the word of his power. Not only is God the creator, God is the sustainer. He's not an absentee landlord or the God of the gaps just kind of filling in where we don't make it. He is the one who began it and he upholds it. And he's upholding it right now. And he doesn't need us. He doesn't need me. That's very, very humbling. And it's very, very free. It's humbling. You mean, I mean, I got a degree, two of them. I know the languages. And he's up there going, and I invented the languages. And I allowed you to go to school. So what more do you want to talk about, turkey? And by the way, you're breathing right now because I allow it. But it's freeing. It's freeing because when you sit down with the unbeliever, you present the theology like Paul's doing here, and it frees you. God will work when he wants to work. He is the sustainer in verse 26. And he uh, he made from one man every nation. You mean to tell me we didn't come, as was said today, we are not accidental pond scum. He made from one man, 
every nation, including you, Greece, every one man, every nation of mankind. And he did it with a purpose to live on the face of the earth. Life on earth as God created and sustains it is good, having determined the allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling. God knows your address. Not only is the creator, he's the sustainer, he is the ruler. He is the creator of the earth. He's the sustainer of the earth. And he knows everything about the earth. He rules over the earth. Not only is life on earth good from God, life on earth is governed by God. In verse 27, he even gave a purpose to our life that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. What Paul is saying, he's in the midst of these city of these intellects, and he says, you, you try to appease what you do not know. Let me claim to you what I know, and it covers all of this. All of these others so-called gods are not the God. There is one who created, he sustains, and he wants you to seek him. He gave us a purpose. Jesus said, uh, true worshipers will seek him in spirit and truth. God is looking for worshipers, and he looks for those who seek him. In verse 27, yet he is actually not far from each one of us. It's, he is not so out there that you can't relate to him. Absolutely, he's transcendent. He's the creator. He's far above us. Think about it. I mean, I get scared going up like a flight of stairs. Don't, I get you know, people like, why don't you put lights on your house? Because I'm afraid of heights. I'm just, why don't you ride mountain bikes? Because I'm scared to break my neck. The mountain's really, really big. And you go fast down the mountain. And God created that. He's far above that. Some of you have been high up and you look down and you see this. In other countries of the world, you take a tram up to the city and you look down upon Italy and you're like, God made this. And he's doing this so people would seek him. He's not far from each one of us. And here's what Paul does. He makes a connection to their culture. Now, this is not saying we have to go out and memorize all of what culture offers us so we can make connections. Don't hear that. But look what he does. For in him, we live and move and have our being. My note My Bible has a note. This is from Epimenides of Crete. Even as some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Some argue this could be from Erastus, a poem that he wrote. All Paul's doing is he's walking through the scriptures, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Job, Isaiah, and then he makes a connection. Your your own culture cries out for God. Your own culture says this. Paul uses literature to point to God. And so I would encourage us, this isn't a let's go um, start doing Bible studies at at, at non-reputable places in the name of the Lord. That's not what this is. It's do you know your culture well enough at the season of life that you're in to engage with people? Do you, can you listen? I know this is crazy. Can you listen to a secular song, listen to the lyrics, not endorse the lyrics, not embrace the lyrics, and then go, now I have a way, the next time I hear that song in the company of someone else, I can use it as a bridge to speak of Jesus. I coach a class Monday, Wednesday, and Friday in the mornings, and there are songs there. 
Um, and I can use that. Uh, there's one person in particular, they like Pitbull. I don't necessarily like Pitbull. But I've listened to Pitbull songs, not because I'm endorsing Pitbull or want my kids to listen to Pitbull, but now when Pitbull makes some silly reference about how much he owns and how much of the world he controls, while they're doing a curl, I'll say, Pitbull don't own the world. He's not in control. Well, and then they, they're doing their curls. Well, that's maybe not what he meant. Oh, trust me, that's what he meant. Do your curls. <laughs> I don't say that, but... But you, you get their lyrics and then you can talk to someone and then you talk to them about Jesus. That's what Paul does. He's not, he's not saying here, let's stop and let's go memorize all these poems. He's just saying, ah, perhaps one poem you guys know about, I can. It's a popular poem. I can make a reference to God. And he doesn't stop there. In verse 29, he calls for a response. Now being then God's offspring, there is a sense in which every person in the world Though we are children of God, there is a sense in which every person of the world is God's offspring. Paul writes about it. It's not up there, but I'll read it to you. In Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. God is your creator. And so, being then God's offspring, because he created you, he sustains you, he's the ruler, i.e., this is God the Father, we ought not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone. We cannot craft him into little idols. He will not allow us to do that. An image formed by the art and imagination of man. No, verse 30, the times of ignorance God overlooked. So he's looking back to the Old Testament. He's saying the times of ignorance God has overlooked, but now he commends all people everywhere to, and I love this, repent. Times of ignorance, there was a time when God worked with people in a certain way and he was progressively working with them. And now he gives you the clearest picture in his son. And it's time for all people everywhere to repent. Not just the bad people, but the moral people, to repent. And I have a few quotes here about this idea of repentance because this is not popular. A.W. Tozier writes, the trouble is that the whole accept Christ attitude is likely to be wrong. It shows Christ appealing to us rather than us to him. It makes him stand hat in hand waiting our verdict on him instead of our kneeling with troubled hearts awaiting his verdict on us. It may even permit us to accept Christ as an impulse of mind or emotion painlessly at no loss to our ego and no inconvenience to our usual way of life. A.W. Tozier. Dr. John MacArthur says the Western church has subtly changed the thrust of the gospel instead of exhorting sinners to repent Evangelicalism in our society has asked the unsaved to accept Christ. Let me paraphrase, as if you're in the position, among all the others out there, may I accept Christ? That makes sinners sovereign and puts Christ at their disposal. In effect, it puts Christ on trial and hands the judge's robes and the gavels to the inquirer, precisely opposite of what should be. 
Ironically, people who ought to be concerned about whether Christ will accept them are being told by Christians that it's the sinner's prerogative to accept Christ. The modified gospel depicts a conversion as a decision for Christ rather than a life-transforming change of the heart involving genuine faith, repentance, surrender, and rebirth into the newness of life. I like that. God is calling every person everywhere to repent, which means to change your mind and to turn. And beloved, you and I have done that, but it's not a one and done. It is every day. We are called to repent because we all fall short. And you're looking at one of them. We are called to repent. It's not, yeah, I repented back in 73. Have you repented this morning? Because there is a God who creates, sustains, rules, and has designed it that this good life you've been given, that you would then give him the glory. Verse 31, why does he call people to repent? Because he has fixed a day. There is a certain day. Jesus doesn't know about it. You don't know about it. I don't know about it. Every Larkin chart, eschatology guy who's a guru saying Jesus is coming back, this they don't know about it. Acts says, God the Father knows, and when, he know, when he's ready, he'll tell Jesus to come. And on that day on which he will judge the world in righteousness, there is a certain standard. Why should we repent? Because on a certain day, according to a certain standard, the standard of righteousness, that which is right, that which is true, that which is holy, that which accords with all of who God is, he will judge the world, the entire world. The entire world. How? A day's coming with a certain standard. How? By a man whom he has appointed. He's been talking about God the creator, the sustainer, the ruler, God the father, and now he points to God the son. God the father will judge the world through Jesus Christ his son. He is the redeemer. And I would ask that if there's anyone here today who does not know the Lord Jesus Christ, as the author of Hebrews says, it says in there somewhere, today is your day of repentance. Should you want to meet and talk after and go get a coffee, be like the philosophers. I will hear you again on this. I'm glad to meet with you. But I would appeal to you that there is a certain day coming, and it could be tomorrow. In a certain standard, all that accords with what is right and true about the God whom we know, through a certain man, Jesus Christ, how do we know this? I mean, Judge, you're talking about words on a page. How do we know this? Verse 31. Verse 31. And of this, he has given assurance to all, everyone. How? By raising him from the dead. Everyone in the world must deal with Easter. And hopefully not just on Easter. Pack them up, pack them in, because here they come in March, April. He gave a definitive answer. Is this Jesus Christ, whom the world would say is a good teacher? How could he be a good teacher? He said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. That's not a good teacher. 
That's the Lord or a maniac. What if, I've said this before. What if we're up here today? Folks, basically, if you want all your problems solved, just come to me. I'll do it. I'll solve it because I am he. What would you do? You would run right now. You would probably be kind enough to wait until it's over and then feed me. Like, what are you saying? But he said, I'm, he's not a good teacher. He's the Lord. And he lived a perfect life, and then he died. Nobody, there's not one person in the world who disagrees with his death. Even the Jews, they record it. You can go read all the Mishnah and all this. In the Talmud, they show you Jesus, this prophet, this sorcerer, as some called him, he died. But he gave a proof. He's no longer dead. He, li- he lives, and he's at the right hand of God. The tomb is empty. And there's no proof that he's still in the grave. That is the proof for everybody. This is, welcome to Eagle Bible Church. It's Easter in September. How, did, how do we know? I'm going to die in faith. If I go to bed tonight and should the Lord take my life, I'm dying in faith that there was a man by all historical counts who lived, and his name is Jesus, and he died and he rose again because nobody has ever proved where he is. Right now, if you want to go with me, we could do this. We could take a road trip. We could go back to Tulsa, Oklahoma, and I could drive you down at 51st and Memorial. I could take you into this graveyard, and I could go to the left, down, curve to the right, down by the the lake, because when they buried my father, they said he wanted to be fishing. Yeah, it's cute, but he's right there. And we could dig it up, and I could show you. Can't do that with Jesus. So, don't read the text. This is what I hope would happen. In verse 32, the men of Athens, all of them, logical philosophers, Stoics, said, this is reasonable, I believe it. And the whole city was converted. Verse 32. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, please, dead people don't rise. But others said, we will hear you again about this. I love that. You bring strange things to our ears. I'm not quite ready to humble myself, but I'll hear you again. So Paul went out of their midst. But some of the men joined them and believed, among whom were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Demarius, and others with them. And so over and over, three times in this passage, you see Greeks, women of high stature, you get names now. And so in over two chapters, you see a slave girl, a businesswoman, blue collar men, philosophers, rich, poor. The gospel cuts across all social barriers. If you notice what happened in engaging the world, we are to give a defense for the hope that we have. And if you notice, Paul did it like this. He observed the culture. Not in a passive way. He was provoked. He felt the angst in his soul, and then he acted. At that time, he spoke. And you say, well, that's Paul. Is Paul like Jesus? I'm glad you asked. Matthew 9, 36 through 38. When he saw the crowds, that's Jesus, He had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest. 
Jesus saw the crowds. He felt compassion for them. And I would say and equate Paul's being provoked is Paul's compassion for them. Just like we looked at last week, let us stir one another up to love and good deeds. We, we often think anytime someone's provoked, they don't have a compassion for someone. That's just not true. And in Matthew 14, 14, when he went ashore, he saw the crowd, he felt compassion for them, and he healed their sick. If that isn't enough, Mark 6, 34. When he saw the crowd, he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd, and he taught them. And so three times in Jesus' life, you see him seeing the crowds, feeling compassion, and then he either called for prayer, he healed them, or he taught them. And so... It isn't just Paul who did that. Our Savior did that. And I would say, like Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11.1, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And so I'll leave you with just two challenges today. Know the scripture because you're going to be called upon to proclaim it, explain it, prove it so that others are persuaded and know your culture. What is, it, what is it unique? And it's interesting, if you've ever done any cultural studies, it is unique. We live in a unique area. And even seven miles down the road, how people do life in gypsum is different, how they do life in Eagle, which is different than how they do life in Edwards, which is far different than how some people do life in Vail. And so do we know our culture? Do we know our, their idols? And are we provoked? Are we... Um, agitated to a point of wanting to act? Or do we just kind of passively go through life saying, I'm a believer. I love Jesus. I'll wait for somebody to come talk to me. That's not living out the Great Commission. All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Stay, therefore, and wait for them to come to you. Is that... Oh, did I just misquote that? Did, did I say, oh, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Pray about maybe sometime getting out there. All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me, says Jesus. Go. If there's one chapter in the Bible that says, here's how you should relate to the word, and then here's how you should relate to the world. Know your scriptures. Go to culture. Father, We can't do this without you. It's a high call. Paul couldn't do it without you. He was dependent on the Holy Spirit to guide him, to empower him, to be a tool in your hand for the good of the world. I pray if there's anyone here today who does not know their scripture, that doesn't understand the gospel, that might they get into a community group and understand what it means to follow you. I pray for those in here who do know the gospel who love you, who may be a little timid about getting out the doors, would you give them a bold faith? Would you give them, when they go and they walk down their street in their neighborhood or down in the restaurant district, would you give them a burden and a burning desire within the heart, not from any uh, man-made sermon, but from the power of the Holy Spirit in their life, that they would be provoked to go and speak the good news to those who need to hear it. 
And Father, would you just comfort us that this is the greatest news in the world. And we needed it the day we were saved and we need it today. Do a great work in us. Pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Those men who are helping with communion would come forward.